The first episode of Fossil Fool is sponsored by no one, because the Earth is on fire, and that's more important. Welcome to Fossil Fool Climate Talk, where we dive into spunky conversation about climate change and how it has impacted our work and daily life. I'm Nazani, the host of Fossil Fool and a Generation Z teenager. Today in the studio, otherwise known as my backyard, we have Will McClintock, a marine biologist currently working for UCSB. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Zane. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're able to be with us. And um, just to give my listeners sort of a background, I am doing an internship with the Climate Museum in New York City. And um, they're an amazing resource for anyone with climate questions and want to see climate art in real life because um, they're a, one of the actually only museum in the U.S. dedicated towards climate change. Um, so that is kind of where I'm at. And uh, why I wanted to bring you into the studio today, Will, is because I wanted to hear how climate has impacted you and your work. So could you tell us a little bit about your life and sort of where you have been in your life and um, go along with that? Sure, yeah. So um, I am uh, originally a Michigander and um, I grew up uh, sort of imagining myself as a musician. Failed as such and um, <laughs> ended up get, getting into biology. I had sort of an aptitude for biology, so I sought out education in ecology, mm -hmm. animal behavior, went to school and grad school and studied spider sex for years, for nice. 10 years. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and then, um, you know, surprisingly, there wasn't a lot of uh, work in the field of spider sex, so mm -hmm. I had to consider alternatives. <laughs> and um, my wife was working at UCSB and had a great gig there, so I just started looking for things to do there. Fortunately, some friends and colleagues that were marine scientists were mm -hmm. looking for somebody who basically was interested in computers and right. the field is is was was called uh, ecoinformatics or organizing ecological information. Okay. I didn't know anything about that, but I like computers and mm -hmm. I liked ecology, so that led me into uh, the world of marine science. Mm -hmm. So ever since then, for the last twenty years, I've been a marine scientist at UCSB and specifically the, the, the work that I do involves planning ocean space mm -hmm. so um, that means sort of organizing people around how they use and protect ocean space and the stuff within that space mm -hmm. and even more specifically <laughs> I, I, uh, I work mostly internationally lots with with lots of in partnership with governments mm -hmm. and NGOs and foundations in organizing stakeholders around okay. planning that ocean space. So basically this is the problem. We have tons of people mm -hmm. uh, using ocean resources. We're yeah. boating, we're fishing, we're mining, we're... Desalinating. Desalinating, <laughs> we're polluting, we're doing all kinds of things to the ocean. In fact, right. 
every single bit of the ocean in the world has been impacted by human activity in some way or another. That's been mapped out. Mm-hmm. And all of these vulnerable marine ecosystems are things that we all, meaning humanity, depend on in a right. major way, right? So we like something like 50 to 80% of the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean. Wow. We're also, you know, eating things from the ocean, whether we're carnivores or not. You know, <laughs> yeah. We're eating fish, we're eating kelp, we're, we're extracting things to eat that are really important for us as sources of protein and so on. And all of these ocean users, as we grow in our population, are kind of in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're competing for the space. Right. And so we have to figure out a way collectively to reduce human impact on ocean ecosystems so that we can use those resources sustainably and protect the vulnerable ecosystems. So my job is to go in and get all those different stakeholders talking to each other, looking at what the various options are, and coming up with a collective decision about where do we put a marine protected area? Where do we put an aquaculture site? Where are we going to allow shipping? And hopefully do that in a way that's data-driven and you know informed by the best available science. Wow, that's really cool. Um, as a climate nerd, you know, we're super, and all of us like teen activists are really looking towards the ocean, you know, especially for, you know, the ocean is 70% of our earth. It's like so important to the earth in general. And so us as teens, I feel like we have this kind of imagination you know land is like so important and we have to protect our land but really the ocean is the biggest part of our world that's so good to hear you say that i mean i think it's that that um realization that that awareness is uncommon in most Mm -hmm. people i mean it's not surprising right we don't go out on the ocean most of us we don't certainly go most of us go under the ocean and see that stuff right and so it's really hard to develop a personal connection to the ocean unless yeah. you're studying it and you're really paying attention to what is my connection to the ocean yeah, yeah. and i think living in santa barbara there is a big big push and difference on like the the way that we view the ocean you know based on how michiganders view the ocean it's like it's it you know our entire city is based on tourism and um and the ocean is such a big part of that and so i feel like if you don't realize it and you live near an ocean, it's kind of like, what? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah exactly. Well, and at the same time, like people, people lived by this ocean for years, and it wasn't mm-hmm. until the oil spill in 1969 when people were like, oh, wow. Um, right. The activities that we're doing in the ocean can severely impact our economies and our experience, personal experience of the ocean, not, not to mention just like our, you know, empathic uh, uh, sort of, experience of watching animal life die and Mm -hmm. um it it takes sometimes it takes some pretty drastic events for us to develop an awareness and you know care for ocean space yeah for sure and you know that's why i'm trying to create this push for um teens to speak out and um people to talk about climate in their daily lives because this is more important than you know people think it is and people view the climate as this thing that's happening slowly and you know it's not going to be changed by one person and blah 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 but we really need to band together here and 
like work to and push and create action and change because we are the people that are affecting the climate the most. Sure. Only 60% of people right now, the statistic is based um, from the Yale Climate Communications Project, but 60% of people believe that climate um, is human caused, which is really striking. Interesting. And um, that is- Climate change is human caused. Climate 60%. change, yeah, 60%. And so I feel like, um, the ocean, you know, is such a big part of that. And humans don't realize, you know, the effect that we have on it as well. Like we dump things in the ocean, we get stuff out of the ocean that not necessarily we should. Right. And um, so what has your work looked like working on and how has climate impacted your work specifically? So um, specifically, when we're trying to figure out the best way to manage ocean space mm -hmm. so that we have things like marine protected areas that protect critical ecosystems that support all kinds of marine life, mm -hmm. um, we have to we have to think about climate. Right. Um, if if we let's say we set up and we did actually just uh, 15 years ago we set up a network of marine protected areas in California. Mm -hmm. This was a big deal. It was one of the you know. Yeah. iconic moments in marine conservation globally. Mm -hmm. We set up 16% of our, our, our ocean space as protected in some way or another. Wow. Half of them were like no-take zones where you couldn't do any kind of extractive activities. Okay. Those places were set up based on where we know and where we think we know mm -hmm. there are these critical ecosystems. Okay. Well, 40, 50 years from now, as climate changes, as the as the oceans warm, those habitats will move. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to be facing another really big planning problem. Oh my God, it was such a big deal setting these things up because fishermen were asked not to fish, not asked, told not to fish yeah. in certain places. Um, you know, uh, conservationists were said, well, hey, look, you know, we set this place aside, but this other special place we're not going to set aside. We're not going to protect. All these decisions we're going to have to revisit shortly wow. as as climate changes, as global as the oceans temperature rises, and so on. We're going to have to think again about well, geez, uh, since this habitat is no longer viable, where you know where else can we set aside? Um, mm -hmm. So, long way of saying we need to be forward thinking in and forecasting how the, 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 um, the climate's going to change, how that is going to shift uh, the um, ocean ecosystems, mm -hmm. and therefore, what areas do we need to protect? It's also really important in terms of like aquaculture. So right. protein is an important thing for people, right? Yeah. <laughs> and fish are becoming a more and more important uh, source of protein. Yeah. Like cows, pigs chickens, that ain't going to cut it, right? Mm -hmm. That is a really poor source of protein. Mm -hmm. Fish, on the other hand, you can, you know, raise in, in aquaculture setups right. um, and yield a ton more fish for the amount of uh, effort and energy that goes into it. Yeah. So it's going to be an increasingly important source of protein. So where do we do this aquaculture? Right now, you know, if you completely ignored climate, you could, you know, pick the various places where it's 
good to raise fish. Right. But that may not be a good place in five or 10 or 15 years. And you got to think about like how human populations are going to be shifting and where they're going to be going in response to climate change. Right. So these climate change models and how they forecast shifting ecosystems mm-hmm. are essential in our understanding of where we can survive um, and where we can essentially rely on ocean resources to sustain human, human populations. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I I learned in my, I took like an IB environmental systems and societies class that we kind of touched aquaculture and touched on what, you know, fish are becoming for humans. And I find that really interesting that, you know, they're, they're this, um, you know, kind of more sustainable, unsustainable way to get protein, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, That's right. when you think about it, That's because right. um, cows, you know, they take so much land, take so much water to produce and take so much time and energy. And that is what's really like curbing up the CO2 emissions. Mm-hmm. And then we look at fish and we're like oh we can raise them in water like super close together and it won't be super bad but then you also look at fish and you're like oh my gosh but the ocean Mm -hmm. this is a big problem as well you know you're using the space in the ocean that could be used for um could be actual natural habitat Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so how do how do you how do you like reconcile that yeah how do you reconcile that i so i personally don't try to reconcile that problem <laughs> right. <laughs> my, my role in, in 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 my work is to sort of play the completely impartial provider of data and information and tools that allow people to negotiate and decide for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what is the best possible solution? Evaluate the trade-offs. What if we set aside this place for aquaculture? What if we set aside this place for conservation? Mm-hmm. And I I I. You know, it's, I don't think it's a cop-out, but I, I do no, think yeah. that it's it's really important for me to be a total impartial um, sort of mediator yeah, between I'm sure. those different parties. Especially, trying. you know, if you're working for governments and, you yep. know, you have to be impartial. You yeah, can't. Yeah, absolutely. If I come in there with, with an obvious uh, bias, I'm immediately dismissed. Right. Yeah. So how how does that... How does that feel working for um, climate, like, you know, trying to be an advocate for the climate and stuff like that, but having to be an impartial source of information for governments and NGOs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as a scientist, Mm -hmm. um, I feel strongly that scientific information should and data should drive decision-making. Right. Um, I also know that if you put a group of scientists in a room and ask them to decide how we should manage ocean space, Mm -hmm. how we should do conservation, they may come up with a good, maybe even the best possible idyllic uh, Mm -hmm. solution for managing ocean space and combating climate change. But if they don't have the support of all the various stakeholders right. in that decision, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. We've seen this happen over and over again. Right. Smart people get in a room, make a decision, put it out in front of the people, and say, 
this is what we're going to do. Your lives are going to change. You can't fish here. You can't do aquaculture there. And people go insane. And right. uh, the laws don't pass. And people fish end up fishing where they want and doing aquaculture they want. So no matter how uh, much I believe in the science and trust that, that, that uh, there, there may be one way of doing thing or another, mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, I... I throw that all out and say, right. let's just, let's provide people with the best available science, the best data, and the best tools, get them all in the room, make sure that their decisions are grounded in science as much as possible, mm-hmm. and then leave it up to the people to decide. I, I, I strongly believe that that uh, stakeholders have to be the, the drivers in the decision. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's weird growing up in a capitalist economy and a capitalist system in general, and then focusing on how climate change has impacted so many people that are completely unaware of it, and then having capitalism rule over all of that. Yeah, uh, I, I, I feel you. I mean... Um... And the, the Cal, Cal, take California's coastal ocean yeah. has been kind of a, a, a wild frontier for fishing mm-hmm. for, you know, 150 years or something. People are, were driven to... Since the gold rush. Yeah, go, go out and get as, much, as many fish as you, as you can, sell them, make as much money as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, regulations have been built up, but definitely, like, the strongest voice, the biggest lobby uh, when it comes to what are we going to do about California's oceans, come from the commercial recreational fishers. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the people that are going to make money off of uh, the ocean space. Right. And, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, um, or a lot of them will tell you, maybe not all, in fact, <laughs> I know not all, but, but it's common where I go, not just in California, but globally. Um, when you talk about what are we going to do with the ocean, the commercial recreational, recreational fishers and, the pe- and then the energy extractors and the miners and so on will step up and say our livelihoods depend on it right we, of we course. make money off of this yeah we stand to lose the most if you restrict our behavior and then you've got the conservation community going well, wait a minute my livelihood financially doesn't depend on it but it's public domain it's and i breathe the air that comes from it and mm-hmm. so why is this like uh, the, the monetary importance so much, you know, more heavily weighted than, right. like, my spiritual beliefs. Or the humanitarian purpose. Or the humanitarian pur- purpose, exactly. Yeah. Like, there's, there's more about this than just, you know, you're making your money. And I know fishermen who lost their livelihoods when marine protected areas went into effect in California. Yeah. That's tough. it's awful. On the other hand, it was an it wasn't a sustainable activity, right? Right. Um, so there you have it. We, yeah. we have to we have to be driven by more than just capitalism. Yeah, and so you've lived in Michigan and in Southern California. You know, tell me what it's like living in two different places and how natural disaster. Um, in relation to climate change has impacted you as a person in your daily life. Would you say that 
you know, you think about climate change differently now that you live in Southern California because of forest fire? I definitely think about it differently now that I live in California. It's hard to say if I think about it differently because of forest fire. I mean, I've, I've been out here since I was 24, mm-hmm. now 51. Um, <laughs> I wasn't thinking a whole lot about climate change uh, in the first half of my life. Um, well, that's the thing, you know? Yeah. Like, a lot of people don't. They, a lot of people don't. A lot of people do have to live through nat- natural disasters to sort of really get it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, certainly when the forest fires raged through Santa Barbara and Santa Barbara Hills, and they've been more frequent and more intense, and mm-hmm. I've seen it happening in Northern California, that is personally frightening. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of fancy myself as a calm, cool, collected dude, <laughs> but I have to admit, this last fire, when I saw it coming down the hill, it oh, felt yeah. like it was just ready to be in our backyard. I flipped out. I got in the car. I left my girlfriend. I just, like, <laughs> I, I was, I, 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 yeah, I was personally freaking out. And, um, that's bound to happen more and more. Mm-hmm. And it scares me. It really, it definitely scares me. And yeah. I, nothing like this crossed my mind when we were living in Michigan. No. And you know, I've lived in the Midwest too. I've lived in Cleveland and in Indianapolis and like, I'm soon to move to Michigan. And I feel like, there is this like kind of uh, sort of this like thing in the Midwest where you have storms and you have like hurricanes sometimes, but you don't really view, and a lot of people don't view natural disaster as correlated to climate change in any way. Well, because we've had natural disasters before, right? Right. We've seen it happening. Like if you live on the East coast, like in, hurricane country mm-hmm. it's like ah, it's just it's the way things go yeah right? the way you it go is through a hurricane you rebuild um but they're becoming more frequent they're becoming more intense right um so the longer you live especially you know from here on out it's going to become it's going to become more and more obvious but it's interesting you know talking about michigan i'm not clear even in my mind like how michiganders are are perceiving or experiencing climate change no doubt they are right and that's actually interesting because i just um listened to this story about how the great lakes are rising yes yeah after being so low for so long right and they are like rising into people's homes right yes so that is my good friend josh just sent me a picture oh my gosh going on just a couple days ago no yeah yeah he's got a cabin on the coast of lake michigan and uh yeah he's never seen anything like it yeah. So what's happening there? Is that ice melt? It must be. It's, I think it's correlated to ice melt, but it's, it's, um, I think it's like heavy rainfall that, that giant, um, polar kind of episode they have, they had last winter with all of the snow, oh, I yeah. think pushed a lot into the, into the lakes as I well. See. And so, um, yeah, if you want to listen to in a great, great, reporting listen to interlock and public radio they have an awesome episode on um how the great lakes are rising but um yeah it's 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 becoming more apparent i think and i just watched a great documentary on climate refugees in louisiana that are quote unquote you know america's first climate refugees 
which I found quite interesting. Because when I think about a climate refugee, I'm thinking, especially Santa Barbara locally, I'm thinking about people who lost their homes in the Montecito mudslide. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, right. Because I have this, like, Gen Z perspective of, like, no, this isn't supposed to happen, uh-huh. you know? This isn't, like, normal for us to have this many natural disasters here. Um, but there is this, like, big difference, and I think especially between ages where where people don't view natural disaster as climate-related at all. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm kind of like, this is, you know, kind of the mission of this podcast is to bring awareness to the fact that we are all affected by climate change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my world, um, you know, I'm frequently trying to get people to think about Who's a stakeholder? Who has a stake in the ocean space? Mm-hmm. Well, if you like to look at whales, if you, <laughs> if you like to breathe oxygen, if you like to eat fish, um, if if you have a sort of a a uh, I don't know spiritual connection to the ocean, or right. if you like to surf in it, you are a stakeholder. Everybody's pretty much a stakeholder. Yeah. Um, and. If you like to visit the beach sometimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or even if, you know, you just like to watch natural, National Geographic uh, shows on, right. on yeah. whales and sharks. Planet and Earth. Planet Earth. My favorite. Whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so if you're from Michigan, you've never touched, you know, uh, the ocean beach or whatever, you're still, you're still definitely an a, uh, ocean stakeholder. And as climate changes, so do the oceans mm-hmm. in ways that will impact you. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you think that, you know, in your work, how have you specifically seen climate or have you seen it at all impact the um, coastal like surfaces in California and around the world internationally? Um, So I I go scuba diving. It's Mm -hmm. actually not really my work. Um, I'm a I'm a marine scientist, right? But, uh, but <laughs> only really only a name. When I when I go to these places, I'm working with people. But I take the opportunity to go diving, mm-hmm. and um, I have been diving in places where. So I haven't repeatedly done, uh, dived in those places. But mm-hmm. I'll be diving with people, and we'll dive in locations where they were just five years ago, and the huge, you know, corals that were just super lively, teeming with fish, mm-hmm. are bleached white, completely dead, no fish. That's been true in Hawaii, it's been true in Indonesia, um, it's true in a uh, number of Caribbean countries I've, I've been working in, Curaçao, Montserrat, Barbuda. Um, in a very short period of time, we've seen coral bleaching. Yeah. Uh, which is influenced by climate change. So, yeah. um, you know, if you've ever been diving on a coral reef, it's, you know, live, teeming, healthy coral reef. It's a spectacular experience. If you've been diving on a coral reef that's bleached, it's like being in a swimming pool where there are no fish. It's clear, right. uh, it's warm. But there are no animals. It's mm-hmm. freakish. Yeah. Um, so that's how I sort of 
personally experienced it. And I've been diving on coral reefs, which are dead. Yeah. I mean, that is is also baffling because the people that don't realize that climate change is human affected is, um, I don't know if they just like haven't been reading, but I mean, in, in Santa Barbara, you can really see it. Like my, like personally, you know, I haven't gotten to do amazing research on, um, marine life and stuff like that, but I've been able to see the effects that forest fire has in very, very close to my home. And, you know, that's scary too. The habitats that are lost through forest fire, the drought that lasted for so long was just ended this year in California. Um, And our, like, Lake Kachuma, our um, resource for fresh water here in Santa Barbara, going down to like 7%. in 2017 that was crazy crazy. and so I feel like you know again with this podcast I want my listeners to talk about climate change in their daily life bring it up absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely it needs to be a regular conversation people have to know what it is how it affects them personally and acknowledge the importance of science right (laughs) understanding what it is and how it's affecting us. Um, we've got to, I mean, we need we need more scientists and we need more funding for this sort of science. That's to, for sure. To, to properly track it and understand it. Yeah, and um, it's been amazing kind of seeing the push um, for climate change and for, um, you know, what we've been fighting for as Gen Z, but... I wanted to hear kind of an outside perspective. What, it, what was it like for you as a scientist to see all of us marching? Yeah, that's heartening. It is, <laughs> it is pretty interesting to... to um, I don't remember when I was young, meaning, you know, maybe up until I was 25, um, hearing politicians talk about science. Mm-hmm. I don't remember any kind of march that had anything to do with science. I remember Earth Day. You know, yeah. Earth Day was kind of a moment when people said, look, like, our natural world is unimportant and we need to cure. Right. Care and, it, you know, especially in Santa Barbara. Especially where it, was, where it was started, right? Yeah, where it started. But, um, but to see uh, politicians and young people saying science matters mm-hmm. um, and we need to be listening to science, we need, to, we need scientists to help us make data-driven decisions that was really, um, that's exceptional. That's a, that's heartening. Yeah. 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 I can, I can imagine, you know, devoting your life's work to this field that seeing like just one person, you know, just the Greta standing up. Yeah. Yeah. And sitting, you know, outside of the, um, the parliament and devoting her life to this work at such a young age. I can imagine how inspiring that would oh, be. Oh, yeah, yeah. And amazing. just how amazing that that would feel as, like, a scientist. It's gratifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to tell our listeners, thank you so much for listening to Fossil Fool. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach us 
at fossilfoolpod at gmail.com. That's fossilfoolpod at gmail.com. Thank you, Will, so much for being here with me today. And remember to climate talk.